Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Welcome. We love that you're here. Uh, We are in the book of Romans. Um, We've been in the book of Romans for this whole school year. Today we're going to be in Romans 9. So if you got your Bibles, uh, find Romans 9 or on your iPhone or whatever's convenient. We'll have most of the verses up on the screen too, if that's a blessing for you. Uh, We've been tracking through the book of Romans um, this uh, whole year. Last week, uh, I attempted to do an entire review of Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8, and then we finished up chapter 8. Uh, and then this week, um, not near as wide of a scope, we're just going to cover chapter 9, uh, but certainly uh, a, a depth to it that's going to be really heavy. Uh, Romans 9 is a um, massively challenging chapter in Scripture. Uh, I, I think maybe more so than any other uh, chunk of Scripture has this passage influenced uh, part of my theology at least, and certainly this chapter has influenced my worship, how I worship, why I worship, um, maybe more so than just about anything else, but it's, it's tough. Uh, this is heavy sledding today in Romans 9, um, but that's who we are as a ministry, and we as a ministry here, we want to go deep with you. We want to take you into deep scripture that's hard and at times uncomfortable, and that's who we are. One of the things I, I want to make sure you know, though, is our ministry does not just fit in an hour and a half uh, on, on a Sunday. Uh, our desire, my desire, our staff, our interns, our leaders, is to continue to walk with you. And so what we're going to be unpacking today is heavy stuff that I don't think is designed to just hear in a 30-minute sermon on a Sunday and then move on. I think it's something that really uh, should be walked through. Uh, For me, when I was introduced to some of the the doctrine, the truth, the theology that comes out of this chapter, uh, I wrestled with it for months. I really did. I wrestled with it for months. And uh, honestly, at first glance, I looked at the God that I was studying and I thought, man, I don't know if I like that God. Um, And I really had to wrestle with who is this God that I'm really worshiping. And so we want you to know that. We want to be approachable to you. That's why we do family nights, to connect you with other families who are walking out their faith. That's why we do student discipleship groups. Um, That's why we have the pack on Wednesday nights. Every Wednesday night, those pack leaders are going to get trained. We're going to go in the deep end in theology uh, this semester and have um, some some really neat time there. But also, I'm going to forget to mention this at the end, and so I'm going to mention it now. Um... Because of some of the questions that come up with Romans 9 when we study it, uh, I'm going to be available to you guys on Tuesday morning as well. Uh, So you can email me or text me or or whatever that looks like or even chat with me after the sermon. But if you want to just come and get a free cup of coffee Tuesday morning, uh, coffee shop opens at 7. I'll be in this patio area with a couple of other people uh, who I trust and love and who have rich theology. And we're just going to have a conversation on some questions that have come up from this and go a little bit deeper in ways that I'm not going to be able to get into in all the weeds. And so if you want free coffee and you want to talk more, or if you're just curious about the conversation, you want free coffee and just sit there and listen to another, other people talk about it and you just kind of be a fly on the wall, we'll be in that patio from 7 to 9 uh, in the morning this Tuesday morning. And so uh, come and do that. Uh, we just wanted to give you some, some avenues to where you could kind of take some other steps if, if you need them after today. There is a tension in our faith that I think creates questions that Romans 9 hits head on. Um, I have oftentimes had this question asked to me but wondered it myself. If God's all-powerful, 
but he's also all good. How do we make that work? Um, God can't be all powerful and all good because we know there's still awful things that happen. And so either he's not all powerful, he's given up some of his control and allowed evil, even though we know he'll win the war in the end, you know, right now he's maybe not in full control, which is why bad things happen, but he's all good, or he's all powerful, but maybe he's not all good and he allows these awful things to happen. And that's been this juxtaposition that I think a lot of people have debated. And Romans 9 takes that question head on. Uh, I think also the question of, if God is in control of all things, why do I pray? Right? If God is going to do whatever God is going to do, and if he's this sovereign God, sovereignty and this idea of God being sovereign is a theme we're going to talk a lot about this morning. God being fully in control, God being sovereign. If he's fully sovereign, then why do I need to pray? He's going to do what he wants to do. Why should I need to pray? Why should I need to evangelize and share my faith um, if God's going to do what he wants to do? This concept of predestination, which maybe some of you have heard, this idea that God predestined those, then why do I really need to share my faith? All of those um, Paul really hits in this passage. And so one more little caution is um, one way that I can justify um, some of these massive theological categories that are hard for me to fit together is I can just reduce God to whatever is most comfortable. We're committed to not doing that. Um, We stand, for us, we take the stance at our ministry within our church, connected to a Bible church, that this is what is authoritative to us. And so for us, we believe scripture is gonna define what is our authority, not what we feel comfortable with, what, what kind of is the most palpable, easiest to swallow kind of version of God. But instead, we're gonna look at scripture deeply and unapologetically and said, this is who he says he is. And so we're gonna build our version of God, our version of theology, who God is, around what scripture says. And at times that's hard, and at times that's uncomfortable, and sometimes it's way easier to just say, you know what, I, I kind of feel like this would be the easiest God for me to worship, so I'm gonna reduce him to this. And you are going to be forced with a choice in your life of what is authoritative to you. And you will have to pick throughout your life is what is authoritative to you for your faith, what scripture says, what other theologians say, maybe uh, devoid of scripture, what you feel like you want to believe, what your parents told you, what your pastor or church leaders told you, or, or is it going to be strictly based on scripture? And obviously that's where we're gonna push you and that's what we're gonna preach. That's what we're gonna preach week after week uh, deeply from this book. So um, I think the idea that God, um, uh, we must reduce God in order for him to be either, uh, okay, maybe he has given up part of his power and so he's good. I, I think that is inconsistent with what Romans 9 says. And so we're going to jump into the text. Romans 9, Paul Paul starts it this way. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here's what Paul's saying. Um, If you remember the end of chapter eight, uh, Paul is talking about how much God loves him. And then he starts chapter nine by this really somber three verses where he's saying, man, I am grieved for my kinsmen. And what he means is Paul is a a Jew of all Jews, right? He is a Hebrew. He is born a a Jewish person and he was zealous in the Hebrew faith. I mean, he was moving up the chain of 
uh, of the Hebrew faith and was a leader in that faith religion. The Hebrew faith, believing the Old Testament, what the law in the Old Testament would produce righteousness in people. And then he came encounter with Christ Jesus. And that changed everything for Paul. And so Paul met Jesus. And so all of a sudden, this Old Testament prophecy now was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul puts his faith in Christ. And now, instead of all the Old Testament Hebrew religious ways in order to earn your righteousness, he realizes all of those are bogus. And instead, Christ is the only way to achieve righteousness. But in his understanding of that, he grieves for those who are still in that old faith. He grieves for those who are still trying to earn their salvation through this Old Testament works-based salvation. And he grieves for them. And he even says, man, I wish I, could, I wish I could be accursed. I would trade myself, cut me off, if my brothers could instead be kind of grafted into this faith. And so he's grieving. And one of the things it communicates is we know that not everyone is saved. Paul's making it very clear. Not everyone is going to come to know Christ. Not everyone is going to be in that line of faith. And Paul, right at the beginning of Romans 9, is so somber and, and aching for the people who aren't, um, who don't know Christ. So Paul's broken up. And then in verses four through eight, I'm gonna paraphrase him. Uh, basically what he's talking about is the Israelites don't get salvation based on their ethnic line. And so a lot of Romans 9, he's talking about kind of this ethnic line of the Hebrew people that God had made these promises to. And he's saying just because they have the ethnic line doesn't mean they're in faith. And he makes this dichotomy. Children of the promise versus children of the flesh. Just because you grew up in a Christian household, just because you grew up in a, in a household and a family and a line of people who said this is what it is and this is what we believe, doesn't mean what he's saying is that you're a child of faith, that you're a child of actually putting your faith in the promise. And so he makes this distinction. Then in verse 9 through 13, he says this, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Here's what's happening. Paul is making this, um, this call back to the story of Jacob and Esau. They were two twin brothers. And what Paul's doing is he's saying, hey, God is calling those who he chooses. There is this idea, it's called the doctrine of election that we see in Romans 9, that God is electing those that he says, you are going to be mine. And what he's saying is that God is choosing people for himself, for his family, adopting them into his family of faith apart from anything that they do. It is not by their works. It's not because they're good enough or religious enough. And he uses this example to prove it because he says, take Jacob and Esau. They were twin babies. And before they were born, before they had a chance to do good or do bad or be a good kid or a bad kid, before they were even born, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated the older will serve the younger. There was this concept that God was unraveling to say, hey, look, I am God and I have chosen. And it's this really heavy doctrine of election, of this idea of, of God calling and, and God being behind that idea. And so one of the things that I would argue, if somebody introduces that, if Paul makes this argument and says, it is God who elects, right? Uh, not because of the works, but because of him who called, 
That's why Jacob was in the family of faith, because God said, yep, you're mine. And if that's the case, I think it should bring up a question. If we, if we have ears to hear, um, and we have been praying that we would, we have been praying all week, honestly, um, ever since last Sunday afternoon, we've been praying for the last service and this service that we would hear God's word and actually hear it deeply. And if we have ears to hear, then I think we hear about that doctrine and a question should rise to the top. I think we should say, well, that seems unfair. Honestly, I think, well, wait a second. If God gets to pick, that seems a little bit unfair. Look what Paul asks in the very next verse, verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul asks that exact question. Is God unjust that he selects and doesn't select? And then he answers it in 14 through 18. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, referring to Pharaoh being raised up by God, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and harden whomever he wills. Okay, here's what we see. This idea of God's grace um, and this idea of God selecting is, is seen here. And we think, well, that seems kind of unfair. But Paul double downs and says, hey, it's not unfair because God is in control and he gets to choose. And then he uses this example of Pharaoh. And if you remember Pharaoh in the Old Testament, if you've ever seen any of the Moses movies or Ten Commandment movies or you studied the book of Exodus, um, we had this idea of Pharaoh who had all of the Israelite slaves and all the Israelite slaves were captive and Moses goes, he says, set my people free. And the Pharaoh's like, no, screw that. And they argue for a while. And then he sends plagues. And he sends plague after plague after plague after plague. Finally, the 10th plague comes. He's like, okay, this is overwhelming set him free, changes his mind, red sea parts, the whole deal, right? This epic thing. What Romans 9 is saying is he's saying God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of he wanted to show his might and his glory. It even says he will have mercy on whomever he wills and he will harden whomever he wills. So theologically, what Romans 9 is saying is it's saying God raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart which made it such a more dramatic story of how God had to show his power, right? So if his heart wasn't hardened, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, we really think you should set these hundreds of thousands of Israelite captives free. And Pharaoh's like, you know what? That's a good idea. And he sets them free and they shake hands and they're fine and they go. But that's not what happened. Pharaoh said, no, no, I'm not gonna let him, I'm not gonna let him go. I'm not gonna let him go. Plague after plague after plague. And he was stubborn and he was stubborn and he held tighter and he held tighter. And, and what Romans 9 is saying is he's saying, hey, God did that. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could show how powerful he was to the world. Okay, so God is in control. God chooses, elects this really heavy, weighty doctrine. Um, Wait a second. If he selects, I think that should bring up another question. If we're paying attention, I think you should have a question, I have a question, and that question is, why in the world then would it be our fault? Right? If it's God who selects and God who hardens hearts and softens hearts, then why in the world could, could he hold me responsible or you responsible for that? Look at verse 19 in chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist 
his will. I love that the Bible doesn't avoid hard questions. I love that it can handle our doubts and our hard questions. I love that there is depth to scripture that handles that and that it doesn't go for an overly simplified answer to be convenient and comfortable. It's okay to ask hard questions. You might get hard answers, but it's okay to ask. That's what Paul does. How can you still find fault? Look at his answer. And this is, this is really where we're gonna take through the rest of Romans 9 and then I'm gonna kind of walk us through some traps of how this could go wrong if we don't understand it correctly. Verse 20 through verse 26. This is his answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, all of us who put their faith in Christ. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is a difficult chapter in scripture if we're paying attention. It is a difficult doctrine to wrestle with the sovereignty, the complete sovereignty and election of God. But here we have it. God is in control. God elects. However, throughout all of this, there is this massive theme of mercy, mercy, mercy. And we're gonna land on that. I think the proper view of understanding God's sovereignty should produce worship, it should produce humility, and it should produce service. And so I, I want that to be the challenge that when we actually understand the doctrine of election and what's happening in Romans 9 and all throughout scripture, um, it should produce in us deep worship like we've never had. That's why this chapter has changed how I worship and why I worship. It should produce in us a deep humility that is sweet and good for us and it should produce a service and a zeal for my faith like never before if I really understand this doctrine. Um, this idea of God's sovereignty also and being fully in control is not unique to chapter nine, right? It's not just like, okay, there's this one chapter in Romans and maybe Paul wasn't thinking straight when he wrote it. It is all throughout scripture, guys. It is from the beginning to the end. It is all throughout scripture. I'm gonna uh, just overwhelm you with a few references. You won't have time to scroll there, but I'm gonna throw them up on the screen if you wanna screenshot them or ask me for them later or we can dig in. This is just a few of them and there's many, many more. Listen to this. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Job 42, 2, which we'll talk about Job here in a little bit. Um, Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah 46.9-10, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined 
according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in control. The story of scripture, the God of the Bible that we say, okay, we want our Bible, we want our God to not just fit what is comfortable to me and, and let me just put God in a box that kind of works with how I feel he should work, but I submit to who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. And the God of the Bible has declared himself in control, holy and sovereign and in control, holds all things together. He holds the molecules of your very life together. He holds the circumstances together. He is in control. He is sovereign. And again, I'll repeat, a proper view of the sovereignty of God. If I really understood this well, and to know if I'm really understanding well, means that it should be producing genuine deep worship, genuine deep humility, and genuine deep desire to serve him and serve his kingdom. So there's three big traps I want us to avoid, okay? So um, here's what I want us to do. Um, if this idea of God being in, in control is, is real and true, there's in, in my experience in ministry and even in my own heart, there are these traps that are easy to fall into where people can take this doctrine and they can run and they can abuse it and they can, they can apply it to things that, that aren't true. And so I want us to kind of, I want to walk you through three traps to avoid and, and then we'll land from there. Uh, those traps are this. There is a trap of indignation and anger that can come out of this, um, this chapter and this idea. Uh, there is a, a trap of laziness and apathy and there is a trap of pain and retreat. And so I'm going to walk through this one at a time. The first is indignation and anger. Um, Job. <clears throat> Job uh, was a guy who had it all together. In the Old Testament, uh, he was super faithful, super good guy, just amazing guy. You like him. He's like Francis, right? You know Francis. He's just the most likable, loves the Lord, loves people. You just never root against that guy. Job was that guy. Had friends, neat guy. Satan comes to God and says, in Job, and says, hey, let me wreck this guy's shop and let's see if he still loves you and worships you. And God says, okay. God who is in control over Satan, right? Satan, it wasn't like a battle of good and evil and who's gonna win. Satan came crawling to God and said, hey, I would like to do these things. Do I have your permission, God? And God said, yes, you have my permission to do this. And so Job loses everything. He loses, his, he loses the farm, literally. He loses his livestock. He loses his home. He loses his children. Uh, he loses his health. He loses everything. And, he's, and he, so for the first 30 chapters, it's this discussion where Job is wrestling with what's going on. He's sitting around a campfire with his friends and they're trying to figure out what in the world is happening and they're giving him bad advice and, and it's this conversation and, and, and he's just sitting there under, confused. What is happening, God? And he's, so he eventually he's crying out, God, what is happening? What is happening? And then in Job 38, God answers. And I'm not going to read all of it because God's answer is two chapters long, right? But if you want to study it on your own, start in Job 38 and just read God's answers. I'm just going to read a little bit of a part of how God answers because there's a theme that you'll pick up on quickly. 38, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, I will question you and make it known to me. So he says, get ready. I'm about to answer you. I'm the God of the universe. I'm about to answer your question of why, why bad things. <clears throat> then he says, 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or, or who stretched the line upon it? Uh, on, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, were you there? Or, or who shut in the sea with doors when it bursts out from the womb? Skip down, verse 12, he says, Have you commanded the morning since your days begin and caused the dawn to know its place? Later in chapter 39, he says, Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe its neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the lotus? Later, he says, Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings towards the south? Is it your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Here's what God is saying throughout this entire theme of, hey, where were you? What he's saying is, you don't have the perspective that I have, Job. That's what God does for for two chapters. He says, Job, I think super graciously, Job, I have a greater perspective than you could possibly fathom. And your loss is great, but I have such a bigger perspective perspective and such a bigger picture and he ends up restoring Job in incredible ways and it's it ends with this really sweet gift from the Lord Um, but that's that's what God is saying here he's making known to us he's making known to us I have a perspective that you don't and so when I hear about God being fully in control and I'm tempted to be almost angry or or indignant to say, well, if God is in control, then why did these things happen? What kind of a God would let these bad things happen? One of the ways that I get stopped in my tracks is I have to realize God has a perspective that I don't have. God sees what I don't see. And that's really hard for us in our fallen humanity to take hold of, to understand there is a bigger perspective and I am not the center of this universe. And I'm not the center of history. And God is doing something bigger. But the question is, is he good? And he defines what good is. He, God, defines what good is. He has perspective we don't. And he has defined that he is good. Uh, I think we often kind of have this hang up with the doctrine of election and sovereignty. And I think it comes from the fact that we focus on his wrath rather than his mercy. Which is mercy is really the theme of what's happening here. Uh, But we focus on, man, why could he be so mean? Why would he allow that bad thing to happen? We start with a false premise. And that false premise is we don't understand that we are depraved. We don't understand. We We think we are entitled to all of God's blessings. And that's where we falter. I don't believe we can understand the doctrine of election and and God's sovereignty without fully also understanding the doctrine of total depravity, which we've talked about in Romans chapter one through chapter three. Remember, all have lost, no one is good, no, not one. Our default setting is sin. My default setting is sin, right? I I do a lot of good, nice things. I'm not a, a constantly horrible person, but it's by the grace of God, right? I in the ways in which I'm a good father to my two boys. It's not because Ben is just this inherently great guy. I'm broken and selfish and sinful, and I want my world to revolve around me, and there's nothing that knocks me out of that and reveals my selfishness than two kids, right? But any part of me that is a good father comes from the grace of God. I believe that me being a good dad isn't because I'm just a great guy and my default was being a good guy. No, my default is sin because that's what scripture says. No one is good. No, not one. But by the grace of God, he's given us these 
gifts and this kindness and this generosity and all of these things, but it's from his grace. But if I don't understand total depravity, then I'm not gonna understand election because I think I'm entitled to it. Uh, I'll tell you a story. Um, a guy came up to me one time and it was when we were dealing with this, um, this doctrine. And he said, okay, Ben, say you're in a sand dune, right? Say you're in a desert and you got a, a dune buggy with you, which I don't know why I would, but there I am. I'm in a dune buggy and I'm in the middle of a desert and I've got like all these rations of water and food and I got an extra seat in my, in my dune buggy. And he's like, and you come across Danielle, which is my wife. You come across Danielle and she's in the middle of the desert and you have the ability to save her, right? You got an extra seat, you got water. Hey, hop on, you have the ability. You see where he's going. God has the ability to save whoever he wants. Why wouldn't you just let her get in the seat? What kind of a person would just be like, well, I have the ability, but nope, and just keep driving? Like what kind of a heartless person would be that? And it's a great story, and it kind of makes you think, yeah, maybe God is mean, except that you don't understand total depravity because the reality is we're not the damsel in distress. A better analogy is you're a terrorist in a mall, right? There's a terrorist in a mall who's just shooting people left and right and doing awful things and just chunking grenades into pet stores and, and Build-A-Bears and just, just food court, just machine gunning and just awful stuff, right? And the SWAT team shows up and they get on the top floor and they get their guns down and they get their sniper and the terrorist is running around. He's in one of those little play places right in the middle of the mall and, and the guy's got a red dot on the terrorist's head and the captain's like, take the shot, take the shot, take him out. He's got the red dot, he's lined it up. He pulls the trigger and Jesus jumps in front of the shot and takes the bullet. That's a much better theological position of what happens on the cross. We're not the damsel in distress. And so, yeah, I have a hard time with election and if I don't understand what I deserve. I'm the terrorist. I'm the terrorist and I'm still left with pretty massive questions. I'm still baffled. But instead of being indignant and angry, why would God let this happen? Why would God not do this? Instead, I'm baffled, but I'm asking the question, why in the world would God sacrifice his son for me? There are still questions in my faith that I don't understand but that's the question. The question is not, I deserve, we deserve, she deserves, he deserves, we're entitled. The question is, we don't deserve it. Why would the God of the universe sacrifice his only begotten son for you? Where does that love for us come from? We didn't deserve that. We didn't earn that. Our sin is offensive, and yet he pays for it. And our continual sin, which we continue to do and continue to betray him, and he continues to offer us grace and mercy. I'm baffled by that. How could God be so merciful? Would we trade, would we avoid this trap of hearing doctrine like this and getting angry and indignant? And instead, would we correct our theology and say, okay, God, you are, you're good and I don't understand and I don't know why you do all that you do and I don't know why you've saved me and I don't know why you've loved me second trap second trap is laziness and apathy right this idea of if God's in control and I think this is pretty intuitive God's in control he does whatever he wants why do I need to pray why do I need to evangelize? Why do I need to go share my faith? God's gonna do what he's gonna do. I don't really feel like I need to do those things, right? If he's in control, why serve? Why make disciples? Why pray? Why be a part of the church? He's gonna do whatever he wants to do. Let's, let's look at this um, because God is in control, but he's also 
given us a role. He's actually given us a command to be a part of what he's doing. And, and even so, let me make the argument for Paul. Um, the author of Romans 9, the one who brings this doctrine right in front of our faces, he, the Apostle Paul, was probably the greatest missionary that's ever lived, right? The, the, the faith of Christianity was spread more by the Apostle Paul in significant ways than probably any other human being. And he's the one who wrote Romans 9, and he was zealous for evangelism, constantly praying. And, and evangelism that cost him a lot, beaten almost to death. I mean, he got beaten to the point where they thought he was dead and that's why they stopped beating him. And then he got up and he started preaching the gospel again, shipwrecked. He eventually got beheaded because he wouldn't stop, right? And, and so the idea of like, well, this doctrine, uh, God's gonna do what he's gonna do should produce laziness and apathy in me all the, all the more ridiculous. Paul literally in Acts says, we're gonna go house to house to house to house. Paul calls himself a co-laborer with Christ, co-labor. That's bold. Like, hey, me and Christ are doing this thing together, right? So we have the author of Romans 9, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who is living this zealous life, not of apathy and, and not of, well, okay, God's going to do what he wants. God lets us be a part of what he's doing. God allows us to come and be a part of what he's doing. He commands us to be a part of what he's doing. I think it's clear that prayer and evangelism, sharing Christ, that prayer and evangelism is the means by which God moves in his sovereign ways. That's how he moves in his sovereign ways and God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility. It should embolden it, right? It shouldn't negate our responsibility to be apathetic, to be like, well, God's gonna do what he wants to do. It should embolden it because it means God's in control. So now it doesn't matter if you are really awkward because now it's not about you and how good you are at praying or how good you are at sharing your faith. Because God's gonna do what he's gonna do and it no longer matters about how have you have all the right answers and you got all your ducks in a row and you've got everything together before you can really pray and share and serve and because he says, I'm gonna do that. Uh, no longer is it about you being effective. It's now just you being obedient. And God says, I will do the work and you get to be a part of what he's doing. And he says, hey, I'm gonna do incredible work. I'm gonna change lives. I'm gonna see lives eternally changed. You want to come and be a part of that? You, you want to come and be used by me for my purposes? Come and be a part of that. That should motivate our service. That should leave us emboldened to go and do and pray and pray and pray. The third trap and last trap is this. Pain and retreat. And this one is tough. Um, they're all tough. But this one is especially hard because um, we see the doctrine of God's just complete sovereignty and election. And, and I think then we also look at it through hard things that have gone through, gone in our lives. And that's so real. Those who have been hurt personally, this isn't a doctrinal issue. This is a personal issue because what God's word is saying is, yes, he was in control. And we think, how can he be good because that was so hard. And that was so tragic. How, how can he be good if he was in control? That's painful, and it makes us want to retreat. What kind of a God? I don't know that I want to approach a God who would let that tragedy happen. Loved ones who we have who don't know Christ or didn't know Christ. Loved ones we've lost, hard circumstances. Yesterday, um, I spent some time in the CICU 
at Cook's praying with a little baby named Annie who um, is four months old. And when she was born, she had a hole in her heart. And her parents are sweet friends of ours. They used to be college students in our ministry like a decade ago. And Danielle discipled <clears throat> Annie's mom. And, uh, and so I spent time up there praying with them. And little Annie um, had this surgery and everything looked like it was going okay. And then Friday night she coded and they resuscitated her for about 55 minutes. And they, they kept her alive and they've got a machine right now uh, functioning as her heart. And it's cycling the blood um, from her heart and oxygenating her lungs and is keeping her alive. And if that machine at times is known to clot and if that machine clots, um, then they have to turn it off. <clears throat> so I, yesterday, got to sit with these parents with their four-month baby on a table with her chest open and tubes and a machine running, running her heart for her and pray with them and watch them declare the goodness of God while their four-month-old was on a table and they didn't know what was gonna happen over the course of the next two days. You better believe we are gonna be praying and you better believe at the end of the sermon we are gonna pray for Annie because our God is in control and he's good but it was amazing to watch these parents also trust him trust him and say he's good and dedicate this life and say, God, would you save and protect and heal? A few months earlier, I was in the NICU and uh, I had to take a baby that was nine days old from its mom uh, who had died and hand it back to the nurse so she could clean it up. And two weeks after that, that nine-day-old baby died. I sat there with that family in a field full of a bunch of other people, and we worshiped God for an hour and a half, just declaring he is good, he is good, he is good. A year and a half ago, I officiated a funeral for a 21-year-old who'd taken his life, and I sat on the front row with these parents. It was their only son and watch them declare, God is good, God is good, God is good. That only comes from a depth of trusting, God, we know you're good, even though circumstances are awful. That's who our God is, though. And so you have been hurt, and tragedy has happened to you, and awful things have happened to you. Don't run because of that real pain, don't remove yourself from the only one who can actually heal that. A God who is in control, but also he is the one who can heal that. And so often we fall into the trap of thinking, man, this is so hard. I'm gonna retreat from this God because the pain is so hurtful. Instead of running to this God, Jehovah Rapha is his name, means God heals. And we run to that God. Don't fall into the trap of retreating from the only one who can heal us, the only one who can bring us that. Pain will come. Pain will come. L look how Romans 8 ends, right before Romans 9. Remember how Romans 8 ends. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from that love if you're in Christ. And no matter what you have been through, 
Yes, you have a God who's in control, but you have a God too who will heal, who is good despite the most tragic circumstances, and who is not, who's also not separated from experiencing deep, deep pain. We don't have a God who's just up in the heavens with his arms folded, who doesn't experience the deepest tragedies. We have a God who watched his son hang on a cross and die, and he didn't deserve it. We have a God who has experienced pain for you to be adopted, for you to experience his love. We have a God who knows pain, sent his son to die for it so that he might heal yours. That is the depth of God that we worship. Our hope, our prayer, my prayer is that this produces, this deep truth of who God is, although at times uncomfortable and hard, it produces something in us this morning. And as we leave here, my hope is that Romans 9 and who God is produces humility in us, that it produces humility, that, that now we know maybe in a deeper way that we are not in control. He is in control. And that that doesn't produce fear, but it produces freedom. Because knowing that I'm not in control, knowing that I don't have to steer, that I'm strapped in the back seat to a God who is in charge and who has got everything under control that, yes, I can trust. And so that humility, I, I hope, produces freedom in you, that it produces worship in you, that as we study who this God really is to the depth of who he is, then that produces sweet, sweet worship because now all of a sudden our worship isn't based on us. It's based on him. It's based on who he is. It's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on how we're feeling. It's not based on if we like the song that we're singing. It's not even based on musical worship. Worship is this idea that our hearts are constantly saying, God, you're good. You're good. And yes, music helps stir our affection, but worship is this thing that we're designed to do constantly. And, and our hope is that we deepen in that because it's not our circumstances. It's not if things are good or bad. or if, It's not even if I feel close to the Lord. It's who he is. It's who he is and my declaration of who he is. And, and then finally, I hope that we leave here and we have deepened a view of what service looks like. That we want to be a part of what he's doing. That we want to be a part of what he's doing. We say, man, we have a God who's in control, so it doesn't matter if I'm awkward or, or smooth or have all the right answers. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to share, and I'm going to testify who this God is because he is at work. Pray with me. Father, we love you. Uh, would we leave changed, God? Um, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for how you have loved us. Um, God, you are gracious. And you are merciful. And we see that all throughout Scripture. We see that all throughout Romans 9. Mercy, mercy, mercy is this word that's repeated over and over again. So God, would you give us real eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand the depth of who you are, Father. We love you for how you have first loved us, that because of your gospel, you've brought us close to you. Because of your gospel, a bunch of people who didn't deserve you got you. And for that, we are grateful. Would our lives respond to the truth of who you are? In the name of Jesus, amen.